Well, from time to time, I, I keep mentioning as we're in the uh, in a section of the Psalms that the Bible likens uh, frequently the life of faith to a journey, and I think it's worth asking the question: Well, what is that journey like? How does it feel? What's it sound like? How do you navigate it? And to answer that question, we're spending several weeks uh, in the section in the Psalms from 120 to 124, which all bear the same title as Psalms of Ascent. And, uh, and as I keep trying to remind us each week, these Psalms were most likely used and, and sung by God's people at least three times a year as they would make their journey from their home to Jerusalem to celebrate the three major feasts of the year where they would remember God's provision and redemption and kindness to them. And tonight we come to Psalm 125, and you can, uh, you'll find it there in your worship folder. You can follow along as we take a look at this this evening. Um, one of the things I, I tried to, to help us to, to see about these psalms is that there's actually some uh, arrangement to them. If you read straight from Psalm 120 to 134 and, and straight on through, you might miss it. But the more you read them, the more you realize that there's repetition. There are psalms that have very similar themes, though put differently. And the more you look at that, you start to realize there, there are actually groups of psalms in this group of psalms from 120 to 134. And there's five groups of three, and each one of those groups begins in a psalm of distress or of anguish or struggle, and the second psalm is a psalm of help, crying out for help, uh, rediscovering that God is our help, and then the third psalm is usually a psalm of homecoming, of arrival at your destination, at God's house in Jerusalem. Also, here in this psalm is referred to as Mount Zion. And Psalm 125 is the third psalm in the, in the second group. This is a psalm of homecoming. It's a psalm that uh, is made explicitly that, that way because we see in here the, the references to Mount Zion in verse 1, in verse 1, as well as Jerusalem in verse 2. And the point of view of the psalm is, as we'll see, is from within Jerusalem. So here the psalmist has arrived on his journey. He has made it to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And yet, even from this place, the psalmist knows that he still lives in a broken world. It's a world of competing desires and ambitions that pull and tug at him. That make this journey difficult and taxing and perhaps even uh, fatiguing and overwhelming. And why does he think that? If you look here in verse 3, look at the very beginning of verse 3. It says, The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. That phrase, the scepter of wickedness, is a a very vivid picture of the psalmist's view of life, this side of heaven. A scepter is a, an image of rule and authority. It's an image of power. And here, in, in this context, the scepter is a symbol 
of rule and authority and power that stands in opposition to God and to everything that he loves. And so for a psalmist, an Israelite reading this psalm, perhaps for the first time, that scepter may have brought to, to mind the Assyrians or the Babylonians or other foreign powers during their lifetime that exerted authority and rule over God's people and God's land. This scepter could also refer to the allure of the other gods from the surrounding nations that time and again God's people toyed with and turned away from him in order to worship them. Or the scepter of wickedness here could be, to update it for us, it could be as subtle as the power of sin that comes out in selfish, manipulative words between a husband and a wife or between two friends that leave wounds that take days, weeks, months, sometimes years to heal. Hear this this phrase, the scepter of wickedness. The psalmist doesn't spell it out in detail. And if you were here last week, I mentioned this uh, last week as well, that oftentimes you might wonder, well, what is the specific context or the specific situation this psalm is meant to speak to or that gave rise to it? And oftentimes the, the, the psalmists don't spell that out. And that can be a little bit frustrating. It's, man, I'd like to know that. But on the other hand, what that does is it actually invites us to see how this psalm reads into or maps onto our own experience. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6, thinking about this, uh, this image of the scepter of wickedness, that whatever stands against God and what he loves, the Apostle Paul tells us that we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when we think about this psalm, what I want you to think about is not just horizontal struggle or horizontal uh, examples of what the scepter of wickedness might be, whether things you can think of today or back in during the Bible times. I also want you to think about how the Bible assumes a much greater overlap between the supernatural realm and the natural realm. That where we see wickedness, where we see evil, it is beyond our ability or power to undo it. Only God can undo it. And that makes this psalm particularly important for us Because as I said, the psalmist recognizes that he still is living in, even as he makes his journey to the house of the Lord, even as you and I make our journey here week after week to meet with God, we're still not yet home. So what I want to do with this psalm is I just want to look at two things, two points tonight, which I know some of you are thinking I didn't know that... We, you could do two points and not three, but um, I can't promise I'll ever do it again. <laughs> but tonight, just two points that I want us to see. I want us to see how this psalm teaches us that God is safe. 
and that God is faithful. That God is safe and that God is faithful. So first, let's look here at, at how God is safe. Look in verse, in verse 2. I want you to notice the point of view of the psalmist here as he writes this. He says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Just imagine here. The, Jerusalem is the highest point in Judea. And the psalmist has made his way to Jerusalem. And the picture we get here is he is on the Temple Mount and he's in God's house and in God's city and he's looking out around the city which was encircled by mountains and mountain ranges so that what it looked like was there was no way to get to the city. It was protected. It was shielded. It was surrounded on all sides. And as he looks out and sees that, that tremendous view, it prompts in him, it reminds him something that's true, that he knows to be true about his God. And he makes this great affirmation. He says, as these mountains surround this city, that's, that's who my God is. He surrounds his people. He is their protector. And not only is it that he's, he surrounds them, here it says he surrounds them now and forevermore. That he's always this way. That he never ceases to be that way. And as we'll get to, to, to see some more in a little bit, to surround something means that it's total. There are no gaps. It's a complete protection. At the beginning of this psalm, it's very similar to what we read in Psalm 121, the very end, verse 8, when it says, He will keep your going out and your coming in now and forevermore. Now, I want you to remember that this psalmist, he's journeyed to God's house, to God's city, to where he dwells, to worship, and he's been reminded, again, who his God really is, and I want to give you a moment to think about that. As you come here this evening, or as you look at your life, or as you look at the world that God has made, do you ever stop long enough to notice anything that reminds you of what you know to be true about God and what he is like towards his people. This, give you an example, happened to me yesterday. I was, uh, <laughs> I was relaxing on our porch swing and it was a breezy day and my favorite, my most favorite part of God's creation is the breeze. I don't know why, but it's always the breeze is my most favorite thing. And so I got to thinking about this song, because I was getting ready to preach this, and thought about the psalmist looking out and seeing those mountains and thought about, well, the breeze is, it, I love the breeze. And how does the breeze tell me anything about who God really is? And as I got to thinking about that, I was like, well, the breeze it makes me feel like someone's near. It brushes against my skin. I can feel it. 
it reminded me of his presence. But it also reminded me of what John and uh, the, the Apostle John in chapter 3 says when he's talking to Nicodemus and says that um, the Spirit of God is like the wind. It goes and it comes. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. God cannot be boxed in. He can't be packaged. He can't be manipulated. The breeze reminds me that God is way bigger than I am. But it also was reminding me too of how God gives me breath. That the breeze reminded me of, wow, I, I have, I draw breath because God make, keeps my heart beating. Now, I don't know what that would be like for you. That doesn't happen to me very often where I have moments where I actually begin to, to look at my life or the things God has made or, and begin to think like that. But what I want you to see here, we, we ought not miss those opportunities. This psalm instructs us that when we come to the house of the Lord, in the midst of the journey of faith, part of how you discover and are reminded who God really is for you is you look for that. God's world is full of things that declare his glory, that sing his praises, And they're there for you to lay hold of and to remember who he is and what he's really like. Perhaps one other example that may be of help. What about a friendship or a relationship or a spouse or a a brother or sister or a son or a daughter? When someone is patient with you, when someone bears with you, when someone loves you enough to maybe make you mad. Those are pointers. Those are clues of what God is like towards you. Those are another, another way to remember and rediscover who God is and what he's like towards you. But with that in mind, it's also the case that it doesn't often look like or feel like that God surrounds his people. And perhaps you're here this evening and you're thinking, I just don't feel like that. It doesn't seem like God is surrounding me. Uh, This is not really my experience right now. Well, what are you to do? Uh, What can bring stability and endurance into your life when that's the case? Look at verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Notice here the power of trust. Here, the writer of this psalm says that those who trust in the Lord are like where God dwells. They are as safe and as secure as where He is. And they cannot be moved, they're stable, and they abide forever. There's endurance. Now, how does this trust actually lead to endurance and stability? Well, the the, the simple answer to this is that biblical trust, the trust that the writer is speaking about here, always looks away from ourselves to God. 
It never looks to us for our resources to be stable and reliable and able to endure. But it always looks away from ourselves and our circumstances to God's character. Now, why is that so hard? I suppose there there are a number of, of answers we could give to that. But I want us to hone in on just the simple idea that I think it's so hard because we're not really sure that God is good. We're not really sure that God is safe. We're not really sure that when this word says that he surrounds his people, that that could actually be true. Even when life doesn't look like that or feel that way. Think of it like this. When, when we are not sure God is good, what, what is underneath that? Usually what's underneath that is that we're also at the very same time believing or thinking that there's something else that is good. And God is holding out on us. And he's not giving us what we most think that we need. One writer put it like this. We want things, even really good things, and we aren't sure God will give them to us. So we put our trust in other gods. This is the problem of the human heart, misplaced trust. We value, love, and trust something in creation more than the creator. And since there is nothing in creation that is intended to bear the weight of our trust, we are bound to live in fear. Let me read that last bit again. Since there is nothing in creation that is intended to bear the weight of our trust, we are bound to live in fear. The only one who can bear the weight of your trust is God himself. He's the only one who can make you stable, who can make you endure. Now, what is then the solution to this misplaced trust, as this writer puts it? Very simply, it's knowing that God surrounds you. Now, let's think about that for a moment, what that means. To surround someone means that you are putting yourself in harm's way. That you're saying you're willing to stand between them and whatever might hurt them. And to surround someone, as I said before, implies that it's total, that there are no holes, there are no gaps in your willingness to stand in the gap, to bear the brunt of what is coming. Nothing can break through. In other words, this is a picture of God saying to you, I will take the blows. I will stand in the gap so that you won't have to. And here's the good news about this. This image of God here is surrounding his people. It is, it actually, how to put it, it takes us to the good news of the gospel. That what we see here maybe in a bit more gray and a bit more opaque way, on the cross is made crystal clear. What does it mean that God surrounds you? It means that he sent Jesus to suffer and die on the cross. How does God stand in the gap for you? How does God actually say to you, you know what? The guilt and the shame that you know you have I will take that. 
And what I'm willing to do for you is total. There's nothing that Jesus has come to do that leaves any cracks, any gaps. He surrounds you entirely. That here, what we see in this image of God surrounding his people in light of the cross becomes good news that isn't just an image, but it's a person. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ at infinite cost to himself standing in the gap so that you can know you are surrounded, that he is for you, that he will always be around you and for you. So there's even more. Let's look at God is faithful. He is safe because he is also faithful. Look in verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 and 5 here, I want you to notice first of all in verse 3 that God is faithfully sovereign. Verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Whatever our outlook on this life, whatever the psalmist's outlook on this life, whatever form of this scepter of wickedness, what we understand here, whether we find it in our own hearts, whether it's the reality of circumstances that we are in the midst of experiencing, whether it's things that we read about in the news around the world, what, what the psalmist is telling us here is that the scepter of wickedness will not win. It will not rest, it will not come to rest and remain on God's people. No matter how far it reaches, God's faithful, sovereign care reaches further. But notice here, too, the second thing. God is faithfully present in the midst of the very temptations you face. Look at the second part of verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And why not? Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now, it'd be easy to run past this, but the idea here is that God knows what you can handle. God isn't going to put you in a situation or a place beyond what you can handle. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I don't always believe that because that's not how I often feel. I often feel like I'm in precisely in the place that I can't handle and I don't know how to get out of. And it's weighing me down or I feel like I'm losing. And maybe you have felt that before and maybe you feel that even tonight. But what he's saying here in verse 3 is that God is committed to his grace triumphing in your life. And he's saying that nothing can or will prevent God from doing that. No matter what we think or how we feel at any given moment, God is committed to his grace triumphing in your life. And that's why I had us read 1 Corinthians 10 earlier. And listen to how Paul puts it in verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice third, God is faithfully listening. If you look at this psalm, as we look at this last, this last point here about God faithfully listening, if you look in verse 1 and 2, and then you look at verse 4 and 5, verse 3 is in the middle. Verse 1 and 2 talk about our, our, our security in God. Verses 4 and 5 talk about our resources in God. Our security in God is trust in Him, His surrounding work. Verses 4 and 5, what are the resources that God has given for living life in the midst of the scepter of wickedness, the struggles and difficulties that we face? It's prayer. And what I want you to see here is we are here invited because God is faithfully listening to pray for peace. Notice the end of verse 5. Peace be upon Israel. Well, what does that look like? How do you pray for that? That can sound so cliche. Pray for peace. Well, what, what does that actually mean? First of all, look in verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, you might read that and go, wow, okay, this sounds like God is saying here, um, do good to those that are already good. God helps those that help themselves. Is this sort of turning the message of grace upside down, that, that God will do good if you do good? That this is sort of a works-based prayer tool? That is not at all what's being said here. Because in the context, those who are good are those mentioned in verse 1 who trust in the Lord. Those who are good are those who are upright in their hearts. In other words, those who come to realize that they are not good, that they aren't okay on their own, that they need God to surround them and rescue them. So the first prayer here is a prayer for mercy, for God to have mercy on those who trust in him. But secondly, it's also in verse 5, a prayer for God to undo evil. That evil would self-destruct. He says, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. This is a prayer that perhaps is uncomfortable. But here we are invited to pray, on the one hand, for mercy. On the other hand, we are invited to pray that the evil and the wickedness that we see in our own hearts, in our own neighborhoods, in our own city, in our own world, would unravel. That it would self-destruct. That it would meet its end. And that God would make that so. And if you're wondering, is that ever really going to happen? Again, that's what the cross of Jesus Christ teaches us and tells us. So much so that death couldn't even hold Jesus, the very wages of sin. But then lastly, the third thing here is to pray for peace that is not just here and now, but that's permanent. Peace be upon Israel. This psalm, what it's describing for us and has in view is a peace that this world cannot take from you. It certainly has in view 
temporal peace. What's going on in your life, here and now, to pray for that. It's a good thing to pray for. But you can always lose that. Something can happen and wreak havoc in your life. Is there any such kind of peace that this world could never take away from you? Listen to how Apostle Paul puts this in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how we hope in the glory of God. Here is a peace that this world cannot take away from us. And why not? Because it's a peace that God gives by grace. It's a peace that even if you die, it cannot take from you. This is a peace in Jesus Christ that sees you through the grave, into glory, into God's presence, into the very throne room of the king. That's what this psalm is intended to put before us and to help us to lay hold of by faith. So if we're being told that God is safe and he is faithful, how might that shape our daily lives? Just two ways. Trust and pray. Or to put it another way, receive and ask. Those are the two things this psalm leaves us with as it puts in front of us a God who is safe, who surrounds us in the gospel, and a God who is faithful, who is with you in the present, right now, in the midst of the temptations and the struggles that you face, working to make you stable and to see you through. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the psalm. Uh, Thank you for these words that give voice to what it is to live by faith. And Father, we ask that whether we have been a person of faith for many, many years or whether uh, faith is is a foreign thing and even uh, something that's hard to imagine ever accepting, Father, we pray that these words would, would have their way with us, that you would... Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might behold Jesus in whom you have surrounded us and have committed yourself to make sure that your grace wins in our lives, in our homes, in our common life together, and even one day your entire world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.